0: Would you please stand as we read the Word of God together this morning and open your Bibles with me to Psalm 136, Psalm 136. It is a very appropriate psalm in light of Thanksgiving week, Psalm 136. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good for His loving-kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the God of gods, for His loving-kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for His loving-kindness is everlasting. To Him who alone does great wonders, for His loving-kindness is everlasting. To Him who made the heavens with skill, For his loving kindness is everlasting. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for his loving kindness is everlasting. To him who made the great lights, for his loving kindness is everlasting. The sun to rule by day, for his loving kindness is everlasting. The moon and stars to rule by night, for his loving kindness is everlasting. To Him who smote the Egyptians in their firstborn, for His loving kindness is everlasting. And brought Israel out from their midst, for His loving kindness is everlasting. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm, for His loving kindness is everlasting. To Him who divided the Red Sea asunder, for His loving kindness is everlasting. And made Israel pass through the midst of it, for his loving-kindness is everlasting. But he overthrew Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea, for his loving-kindness is everlasting. To him who led his people through the wilderness, for his loving-kindness is everlasting. To him who smote great kings, for his loving-kindness is everlasting, and slew mighty kings, For his loving kindness is everlasting. Sihon, king of the Amorites, for his loving kindness is everlasting. And Og, king of Bashan, for his loving kindness is everlasting. And gave their land as a heritage, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Even a heritage to Israel, his servant, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Who remembered us in our low estate, for his loving kindness is everlasting, and has rescued us from our adversaries, for his loving kindness is everlasting, who gives food to all flesh, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the God of heaven for his loving kindness. Is everlasting. This is the sacred word of God. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this psalm. We thank you that you are the God of heaven, the King of heaven, the King of heaven and earth, And we thank you that you are a God of loving kindness, of loyal love, of steadfast love. And that your loving kindness is everlasting. It is unending. It is undying. And we thank you for setting your loving kindness upon Israel. An undeserving people. And we thank you that you delivered them from their bondage in Egypt. We thank you for delivering them by your strong hand and your outstretched arm, and we thank you for bringing them into the land of promise. You are the faithful God, and we thank you that from Israel your son would be born, and he would be the savior of the world. Indeed, he would be our Savior. He is our Savior even today. Father, we thank you that you have set your loving kindness upon us, a people who deserve nothing but your judgment. We thank you that you do not treat us as our sins deserve, but you always treat us according to your mercy and your grace. We thank you for the gift of life and health and the ability and the means to gather here on this Lord's Day. And we thank you even more for the gift of a new heart, a desire to be here, a desire and a longing to serve Christ and to bring glory to Him. As we are in the week of the Thanksgiving holiday, I pray that you would impress upon our minds and our hearts the great obligation that we have before you to be a thankful people and that above all things we would be thankful for Christ. We thank you that our life is in him, that our salvation is in him, that our hope of heaven is in him, And it is only by him that we can approach you, the holy God. We thank you that by faith we are justified in your sight and that we have received the full righteousness of Christ imputed to us by grace. Father, we thank you for all of these things. We thank you that you are a good God, that it is your nature to be good and to be kind We bow before you, we yield ourselves to you, we give ourselves to you afresh, and we pray that you would take your word and that you would nourish our souls, that you would feed us, that you would sustain us. May you build up your church on this Lord's Day, O God, not only here but everywhere around the world where your people gather. And may the name of Jesus Christ be lifted up and praised. And we pray this in his most majestic name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. It is such a joyful privilege to once again open our Bibles to Colossians chapter 3, and so I would invite you to do that with me. And we will be directing our attention this morning once again to verse 19. The title of our message is The New Humanity at Home, part 5. And this is our last message on the subject of marriage. As we begin our time together, let me read verses 18 and 19 in your hearing and set the word of God in your mind. The Apostle Paul writes, Wives, be subject to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be embittered against them. This is the word of God. For 28 years, Timothy Keller served as the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in the heart of New York City in Manhattan. At one point, there were about 4,000 people attending the church on a regular basis, and of those 4,000 people, about 3,000 of them were singles. About 75% of the church was unmarried, and the majority of those people were young, professional people. Ministering in New York City, Timothy Keller said that he and his wife were constantly struck by the deep sense of ambivalence with which Western culture now views marriage. In other words, more and more young adults are saying no to marriage. There is a long list of reasons why younger people are not getting married. They say that marriage destroys individual identity, that it's oppressive to women that it will interfere with my personal goals and ambitions, that it's an outdated tradition, that it's just a piece of paper, that it's not economically feasible, that it doesn't bring happiness, and on and on it goes. Over the last 60 years, ideas about marriage have dramatically changed in our culture. Today, there are far less people getting married and far more couples who are choosing to live together. This is the new normal. The divorce rate is now about twice what it was 60 years ago, with about half of marriages today ending in divorce. And of those who remain married, how many of them are truly happily married? I don't think there are very many. And so it is clear that the state of marriage has fallen upon very hard times in our American culture. But as Christians, we ought not to think about marriage the way that our ungodly culture does. We ought to have a distinctively Christian view of marriage, which is a very high view of marriage, we ought never to view marriage with a sense of ambivalence the way the culture does, but we ought to hold it in very high regard. Part of what it means to have a biblical worldview is to have a biblical vision for marriage. And while more could be said here, a biblical vision for marriage includes at least these four truths, and they are listed for you on your sermon notes. A biblical vision for marriage begins by recognizing that, number one, marriage is God's idea. Marriage is not a human tradition, not merely a human tradition. It is God's idea. God is the one who created marriage. And as we have said before, the Bible begins with a wedding and it ends with a wedding. Number two. Marriage is a creation ordinance intended for the welfare, happiness, and procreation of mankind. In other words, marriage is a good thing. It is a glorious thing. It never becomes outdated, and it should never be viewed by us with ambivalence. Number three, since marriage is created by God, it is to be regulated by God. The definition for marriage and how marriage is to be lived out is not up for debate, nor is it subject to the shifting ideas of the culture. God alone has the right to define marriage and to provide instruction for how marriage is to be lived out, which he does in his word." And so the Bible alone gives us the blueprint for marriage. Not the culture, not surveys, not popular opinion, and certainly not politicians. The Bible teaches that marriage is a one-man, one-woman covenant relationship for life. A one-man, one-woman covenant relationship for life. Number four. While marriage is instituted by God and is inherently good, it can also be very difficult because of human sin. Can I get a witness? (laughs) Therefore, the grace of God is needed in abundant measure for marriage to be joyful and to be enduring. This week, I went to Amazon.com, and I typed the word marriage in the search bar. I got more than 90,000 results. Literally tens of thousands of books have been written on the subject of marriage. And many of them, most of them, deal with very specific problems in the marriage, like sex, sex, And money and conflict. These are important things that need to be addressed, and the Bible addresses them. But more importantly, what we need is a vision for marriage according to the Bible. We need to be firmly rooted in what the Bible says about marriage and how it is to be lived out. And that brings us once again to Colossians chapter 3. In the first half of Colossians chapter 3, Paul teaches that we as Christians are a new humanity in Christ. And then beginning in verse 18, Paul teaches what the new humanity in Christ looks like in the home. The first relationship that Paul addresses in the home is marriage in verses 18 and 19. And in these two brief verses, Paul does not address what so many books on marriage written today address, sex and money and conflict. Instead, Paul does something that is far more important. He establishes a vision for how God has designed the marriage relationship to function. Paul's great focus is on the distinctive roles that God has designed in the marriage for wives and husbands. As we have said many times now, while believing men and women share a glorious union and unity in Christ, our unity does not eliminate distinctive roles in marriage. Equality does not mean sameness, and that has to be repeated because we are told otherwise by the culture. God has called husbands and wives to distinct roles within marriage that when lived out complement one another. The distinctive role that God gives to wives is that of submission to the leadership of their husbands. We see that very clearly in verse 18. And the distinctive role that God gives to husbands is that of being loving leaders of their wives. We see that also very clearly in verse 19. These are like two massive pillars in laying a foundation for a biblical vision of marriage. And if you were to look at those more than 90,000 Books on Amazon, very few of them would say anything about what we're talking about today. As we have been making our way through Paul's instruction to Christian husbands in verse 19, so far we have looked at the first major point, Roman numeral 1, in our outline, the divine design for loving leadership and marriage in the first half of the verse. And again, you will note how Paul begins the verse by directly addressing the husbands in the church. And with regard to their distinctive role in the marriage relationship, he gives them a command to love their wives. It is a present tense command. It is to love their wives as a way of life, as a lifestyle. He does not say husbands lead your wives, but husbands love your wives. Based upon what Paul says to the wives in verse 18, it is a given that husbands are to lead their wives. And so Paul doesn't have to repeat that here. Instead, his great burden is for husbands to lead their wives in a loving manner. We asked the question, what does it mean for a husband to love his wife? And we said the answer is that he is to seek her highest good. That is what it looks like for a husband to love his wife. He seeks her highest good. And so if you are a Christian husband and you are here today, Under God is your responsibility to seek the highest good of your wife. That is your role. That is your responsibility. That is your obligation. From there, we turn to Ephesians 5, where Paul expands upon this command for husbands to love their wives, and we ask the question, how is a Christian husband to love his wife? What does that look like in more detail? Paul's answer is that a Christian husband is to love his wife with Sacrificial love and special love and sovereign love and sanctifying love and sensitive love. The pattern that a Christian husband is to follow in loving his wife is the love that Christ has for his church. Christ loves his bride with sacrificial love, a special love, a sovereign love, a sanctifying love, and a sensitive love. And a faithful Christian husband is to love his wife the same way. A faithful Christian husband is to sacrifice himself for the highest good of his wife. He is to love his wife like no other. He is to choose to love his wife even when his wife is unattractive or undeserving of his love in his eyes. He is to seek her spiritual growth and holiness. And because of their one flesh union, he is to nourish and cherish his wife as being part of him. He, his need, her needs, rather, are his needs because they are now one flesh. This is God's design for how the husband is to love his wife in marriage. But there is more in verse 19. There is not just one command. There are two commands. The first command is positive, and the second command is negative. That brings us to the second major point, Roman numeral 2, the divine warning against harsh leadership in marriage. Notice the end of the verse where Paul says, and do not be embittered against them. In the egalitarian versus complementarian controversy, there are some critics who say that complementarianism leads to abuse. That is, the husband's abuse Of his wife. And this kind of rhetoric is coming more and more from leaders, significant leaders, including leaders within the Southern Baptist Convention. And so I ask you this question is that accusation valid? Is it true? Does complementarianism lead to abuse in marriage? Does the fact that God has designed the husband to be the head of his wife lead to abuse in marriage? Well, the issue has become so great that Dr. Al Mohler addressed it in a recent chapel message at Southern Seminary, and here is part of his answer, and I quote, It can and it has, but that's not the source of the problem. The source of the problem is human sinfulness, pride, and arrogance. I agree with Dr. Mohler. Does complementarianism lead to abuse? He says it can and it has, but that's not the reason for the problem. The reason for the problem is human sin. And so we must be very clear at this very point that God's design for marriage is not abusive, it is not abusive. If there is abuse in the, problem, in, in the marriage, the problem is not God's design. The problem is in human sinfulness, human failure, human arrogance and pride. A couple of weeks ago, I gave a lengthy quote from Owen Strain. And here is a portion of what he says. He's writing about Ephesians 5. He says, if you want to see where abuse goes to die, look no further than at the Bible's most extended teaching on marital complementarity. If you want to see where abuse goes to die in a marriage, go to Ephesians 5. Go to Colossians chapter 3. There is nothing in these passages that promotes abuse. And so I say with every fiber of conviction in my being that complementarianism does not lead to abuse. Now, I want you to think about the husband walking on a tightrope. If he is not careful, if he is not careful to follow the Bible's instructions, he can easily fall off of that tightrope On one of two sides. On one side is being passive. And there are a lot of passive husbands in our culture. A husband that does not lead his wife and does not lead his children. On the other side is being a tyrant. And this is when a husband abuses his leadership role with his wife. But if the husband follows carefully what the Bible teaches about his role in the marriage, he will avoid both of those faults. He will avoid the sin of being a passive husband and also avoid the sin of being a tyrannical, abusive kind of husband. And so again, clearly abuse in marriage is not caused by God's design for a husband's role. It is caused by a husband's sin. It is not to be blamed by God's design. Now, if if Paul would have given husbands just the first command, the command to love their wives and left it at that, we would think that that is enough. I mean, if a husband is called to love his wife, then obviously he should not abuse his wife in any way. But because it is the sinful tendency... Of man to abuse his authority, Paul goes out of his way to give a strong warning to husbands against exercising harsh leadership in the marriage. So look at verse 19 again. In its totality, husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. The first is a positive command, the second is a negative command, a prohibition, a warning. And so, husbands, you have the right, even the obligation, to lead your wife under God. But listen carefully to what I say. You have no right to abuse your role. You have no right to abuse your wife. You have no right to be embittered against your wife. You have no right to be harsh with your wife. You have no right to be a bully with your wife. God has called you to be the leader of your family, of your wife, but you must not be an authoritarian kind of leader. God has called you to be a strong leader for your wife, a courageous leader, a brave leader. You are not to be a weak and spineless husband like they are so often portrayed in movies and in TV shows. But neither are you to be an Archie Bunker kind of husband. I grew up with that show on the TV. My parents watched it. Husbands, your model is Christ. As a husband, you are to be like Christ. And dear people, Christ is never harsh with his bride. He is strong, and he is caring. He possesses authority, but he is not authoritarian. He is Lord, but he is also gracious and kind and comforting. On your sermon notes, there is a quote by John MacArthur who says, Paul tells husbands, Not to call their wives honey and then act like vinegar. That's a great way to put it. Don't call your wife honey and then act like vinegar. Husbands must not display harshness of temper or resentment toward their wives. They are not to irritate or exasperate them, but rather to provide loving leadership in the home. And so, husbands, I hope and pray that you're not like vinegar. And something that is also very important to recognize is that God, I'm talking to husbands now, God takes the way you treat your wife very, very seriously. A husband cannot separate his relationship from his wife and God. Let's hold our spot here in Colossians 3 and turn for a moment to 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. This is one of the passages in the New Testament that addresses marriage and lays out the roles of husbands and wives. And in the opening six verses, Paul addresses the Christian wife, and then in verse 7, in one verse, he addresses the role of the husband, and he has something very strong to say to husbands. He says, "'You husbands,' 1 Peter 3, 7,' You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way. Do you do that, husbands? Do you live with your wife in an understanding way? As with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. And then notice the last phrase, here is a very strong warning so that your prayers will not be hindered. I say again that a husband cannot separate his relationship with his wife from his relationship with God. If he fails to live with his wife in an understanding way, that will completely wreck his prayer life. God is not going to listen to that man's prayers if he does not honor his wife if he does not treat her the way that God calls him to treat her. And so you cannot be cruel and unkind and harsh to your wife and then go off and have your quiet time and study the Bible and do ministry. It doesn't work that way. If you act that way to your wife, you must repent, you must confess your sin to God, confess your sin to your wife, and then serve the Lord properly. This is a strong warning And so I ask you, as we turn back to Colossians 3 now, just some questions that I've asked my own heart and I ask you as well, the husbands. Husbands, are you harsh with your wife? Or are you gracious and kind with your wife? Do you lead your wife with severity or with kindness? Are you a loving leader of your wife, or are you a dictator? Do you intentionally seek to love your wife as Christ loves his people? Now, wives, I asked you a few weeks ago to take a few moments to meet with your husband in private and ask him how you can better submit to him. I hope that you have done that. If you've not done that, I exhort you, wives, to do that. Do it soon. And, husbands, I ask you to do the same thing. Carve out some time, unhurried time, private time, and ask your wife how you can be a better leader for her. Humble yourself. Do not be defensive. Listen well. And seek the grace of God to grow as a better, more faithful husband. And so I exhort both husbands and wives to do that and to do it soon. And to do it regularly, not just once every decade. Now with the rest of the time that we have this morning, I want to answer two questions about marriage and then give a final exhortation. The first question is this. Why does marriage exist? Why is there marriage? Why do we live in a world where there is marriage? I have already given part of the reason when I said earlier that marriage is a creation ordinance intended for the welfare, happiness, and procreation of mankind. But none of these are the ultimate reason why there is marriage. What then is the ultimate reason for marriage? The answer is given in Ephesians chapter 5. And so let's turn to Ephesians chapter 5. And as you turn to Ephesians 5, we'll be looking together at verses 31 and 32. In verse 31, we have this statement, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This is a quote from Genesis 2:24. In verses 28 to 30 Paul writes about the union between a husband and a wife in marriage they are one flesh, and to support his teaching and to show that Paul's teaching is rooted in God's design for marriage, he then quotes Genesis 2:24. Genesis 2.24 is far and away one of the most important verses in all of the Bible about marriage. This is a verse that every Christian ought to be very, very familiar with. And in this one verse, there are at least three foundational truths about marriage. These are on your sermon notes. The first is the precedence of marriage. And by that, what I mean is the marriage relationship takes precedence over every other human relationship. Look at the verse again, verse 31. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife. As much as we love our children and as much as we want to be with our children, God never intended our children to live with us forever. According to God's good design, at some point, children will grow up. They will leave the nest, hopefully, and establish their own family. They don't always do that. And so God's pattern is to leave and cleave. It rhymes. It's easy to remember. Leave and cleave. That is God's pattern. You leave your parents. You cleave to your spouse. And this pattern reveals a very important principle about Human relationships. The relationship between a husband and a wife takes precedence over every other human relationship, including a person's relationship to their parents and including a person's relationship to their children. The bond that is established between a husband and a wife is greater than the bond that you have with your parents. And it is even greater than the bond that you have with your children. So once you get married, your spouse becomes first among human relationships. The two become one flesh. They share all of life together in a way that is unique. Well, another truth that we see in Genesis 2.24 is the purity of marriage. The marriage relationship is exclusively between a man and a woman. And in our culture, 21st century Western culture, we have to say this a lot. There is no such thing as same-sex marriage because the only kind of marriage that exists is that between a man and a woman. Additionally, Genesis 2.24 prohibits polygamy and adultery. Marriage is not only between a man and a woman, notice carefully, but between one man and one woman. Anything other than this is a corruption of God's pattern of marriage. And then there is a third truth that we see in Genesis 2.24, the permanence of marriage. The marriage relationship is intended to be permanent in this life. Marriage is defined this way. I said it earlier. I will repeat it. It is one man, one woman in covenant relationship for life. One man, one woman in covenant relationship for life. When you get married, you vow to love and to cherish your spouse for how long? Until things grow difficult. Until I become unhappy. Until I fall out of love. No, until death do us part. And we need to take that very seriously. Do you see the word joined there in verse 31? Do you know what that word means? It has the idea of being glued. Think about gluing something together. When a man leaves his parents and gets married, he is permanently joined to his wife as long as they both shall live. Whenever you glue something together, the idea is that you never intend to separate it. You don't glue things together if you don't want them stuck together. If you want to attach something together temporarily, you use something like a paperclip. Not glue. But when you want to attach two things together in a permanent relationship, you use glue. And once you glue two things together, you cannot pull them apart without causing great damage. Again, marriage is a one-flesh relationship. And the one-flesh union of marriage is not intended to be separated except in death. And so in Genesis 2.24, we can clearly see these three foundational truths about marriage, that the marriage relationship takes precedence over all other human relationships, that the marriage relationship is to be purely between one man and one woman, and thirdly, that the marriage relationship is to be a permanent one flesh union until death. But there is something else about marriage that no one in the Old Testament ever understood. Not Adam and Eve, not Moses, not Abraham, not any of the prophets. We'll call this letter D in our outline, the picture of marriage. Look at what Paul says in verse 32. This mystery is great. He's referring back to verse 31 where Paul quotes Genesis 2.24. There is something about the marriage relationship that Paul says is not just a mystery, but it is a great mystery. Do you remember what the word mystery means in the New Testament? It doesn't refer to something that can't be figured out or can't be explained. I grew up watching a TV show called Unsolved Mysteries. And there were all of these stories that you just couldn't explain and you couldn't figure out, and that's often how we use the word mystery. Well, that isn't the New Testament meaning of the word mystery. Rather, in the New Testament, a mystery is a truth that was previously hidden but has now been revealed. It is a truth that was at one time only known to God but has now been revealed to us by God. That is a mystery, and Paul uses the word mystery of a number of things in the New Testament, including marriage right here. In other words, Genesis 2.24 is now cast into a new light. There is more here in Genesis 2.24 than we ever knew. There is a deep and profound truth about marriage from Genesis 2.24 that used to be hidden, but is now revealed by God to his people. What is it? Verse 32 tells us, this mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. The great mystery of marriage is that it is about Christ and the church. The union of a husband and wife becoming one flesh in marriage points to something way beyond itself. It points to the greater union of Christ with his bride. This is the mystery. So why does marriage exist? The ultimate reason that God created marriage is that it would be a picture, that it would be a living illustration of Christ's relationship with His people. On your notes is a quote by John Piper, and he says it this way, God didn't create the union of Christ and the church after the pattern of human marriage. Just the reverse. He created human marriage on the pattern of Christ's relation to the church. In other words, which marriage comes first? Christ's marriage with his church or our marriage? The marriage between a man and a woman or the marriage between Christ and his church? Which comes first? It is the marriage between Christ and his church. Before the foundation of the world, God predetermined the union of Christ with his bride, and in order to illustrate that glorious union, God established the marriage relationship between a man and a woman. Human marriage, then, is a sacred reflection of the union between Christ and his bride, The marriage relationship is designed by God to put on display for the entire world to see what the relationship between Christ and his bride is like. Human marriage is a picture of that. And so in terms of the distinctive roles of husbands and wives, the gospel in Ephesians chapter 5 provides the pattern for marriage. Wives are to submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ, and husbands are to love their wives as Christ loves the church. But what we are learning here in this mystery is that the gospel is not only the pattern of marriage, it is The highest meaning of marriage. It is the apex of marriage. It is the ultimate reason why marriage exists. Marriage exists to be a picture of the gospel. The covenantal relationship between husband and wife is to be a portrait of the covenantal relationship between Christ and his church. This is a great mystery. A glorious mystery. And so husbands and wives, how well are you illustrating this reality in your marriage? Is the glorious union of Jesus Christ with his people clearly seen in your marriage? Is your marriage a clear witness to the gospel? I'm going to say something very strong here, but I say it with love. If your marriage is not displaying the gospel, then you are vandalizing the portrait of God. God designed marriage to be a portrait of Christ and his church. And if you fail to live out a gospel-centered, gospel-motivated marriage, then it is as if you were defacing God's portrait of Christ and the church. There is much at stake in marriage. And so the greatest burden of your marriage is that you would put on display for people to see the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. This completely undercuts popular ideas about the ultimate purpose of marriage. As you know, we live in a very consumer-driven culture where everything is about the consumer, everything is about me and satisfying me. This is how people even view marriage and even go into marriage. Marriage is all about me getting what I want out of life. It's all about my personal goals and my gratification and my fulfillment. Listen carefully. If you think marriage is ultimately about you, then you are committing idolatry. It is not ultimately all about you. A marriage that is built upon the foundation of satisfying self is built upon sand. And it is a marriage that will not be happy And a marriage that probably will not last. Marriage is not built upon, nor is it held together by getting what I want. That is a faulty foundation. Marriage is built upon and held together by what you believe about God, what you believe about His attributes, what you believe about His providence, what you believe about the gospel, what you believe about the glory of God. And how you can serve your spouse to the glory of God. As a Christian, everything in your life is to be about God, His glory, the gospel, including your marriage. The second quote by John Piper in your notes, he says, "...the highest meaning and the most ultimate purpose of marriage." is to put the covenant relationship of Christ and his church on display. That is why marriage exists. If you are married, that is why you are married. If you hope to be, that should be your dream. And so instead of being consumed with self-gratification in marriage, Think about marriage in this way. How can I please God in my marriage? How can I make the gospel known in my marriage? How can I be faithful in living out my covenant responsibilities in marriage for the highest good of my spouse and for the glory of God? That's why marriage exists. The second question is this. Why does the Bible give so little direct teaching about marriage. Have you ever thought about that question? Why does Paul devote all of his instruction to marriage in his letter to the Colossians in just two verses? And why is it that the longest, most comprehensive teaching on marriage in the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 5 is only 12 verses? Why? In light of how large the Bible is, and in light of how important marriage is, it is surprising how brief the Bible's direct instruction is on marriage. And so why is it like that? Well, I would argue that the reason for this is because, in one sense, all of the Bible is for married people, not just a few passages about marriage. It goes back to your ultimate identity as a Christian. Before you are a married person, you are a Christian. And before your spouse is your spouse, your husband is your brother in Christ. Your wife is your sister in Christ. And so, while the marriage relationship is unique to all other human relationships, in another sense, it is the same as your relationship with all other believers. All of the Bible's instruction, then, about Christian living is to be lived out in your marriage. In your marriage you go back to Colossians chapter 3 for just a moment, think about Paul's teaching to the church in Colossae in chapter 3, verses 1 to 17. Verses 1 to 17 is not directly about marriage, but it applies to marriage. In verse 5, Paul says, as a Christian, you are to put to death sexual sin. Does that apply to marriage? You bet it does. In verse 8, Paul says, As a Christian, you are to put off sinful anger. Does that apply to marriage? Absolutely. In verse 9, As a Christian, you are to put off lying. Does that apply to marriage? Of course it does. In verse 12, As a Christian, you are to put on godly attitudes. You are to put on a heart of compassion, verse 12, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Does that apply to marriage? Absolutely. In verse 13, as a Christian, you are to put on tolerance and forgiveness. Does that apply to marriage? For sure. In verse 14, you are to put on love. Does that apply to marriage? Of course it does. In verse 15, you are to be a peacemaker. Does that apply? to marriage? Absolutely. In verse 16, you are to let the word of Christ dwell within you richly. Does that apply to marriage? Definitely. And then in verse 17, as a Christian, everything you say and do is to be done in the name of the Lord Jesus. Does that apply to marriage? Absolutely. And so if you are married, all of this is for you as a wife or as a husband. All of this is to be applied in how you relate to your spouse. And now finally, number three, our last point, concluding exhortations about marriage. And the first one that I want to give is to the unmarried. If you are unmarried... But desire to be married one day. Be very careful before you say, I do. Be very careful. As you look for and as you pray for a spouse, keep Genesis chapter 2 and Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 in the forefront of your mind, in the forefront of your thinking. Keep God's design for marriage in the forefront of your thinking. If you are a woman, when you consider a man to marry, ask yourself, would I be willing to follow the leadership of that man? If the answer is no, then do not marry him. If you are a man, when you consider a woman to marry, ask yourself, would I be willing to lead and love that woman sacrificially as Christ loves the church? If the answer is no, then don't marry her. Be very careful before you say, I do. Do not enter marriage unless you... And your potential spouse are willing to live out the roles God has given for husbands and wives. Don't do it. And now an exhortation to the unmarried and the married alike. While marriage is the most important relationship between human beings, it is not not the most important relationship that you have the most important relationship that you have is with God whether you are married or unmarried marriage as glorious and wonderful as it is it is a temporary relationship until death do us part but your relationship with Christ and the church is permanent it is everlasting And so as a Christian, your ultimate identity is not in your marital status, but being united with Christ. Your life is not found in marriage. It is found in the Lord Jesus Christ and in Him alone. As we conclude, look one more time at Colossians 3. And let me remind you how Paul begins this extraordinary chapter in verses 1 to 4. And notice how frequently and how many ways he points the reader to Christ. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Our life is in Christ. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the power of your word, for the clarity of your word, We thank you that you have not left us to ourselves to figure things out, but you have instead given us a clear revelation of marriage, of how we are to live and relate to our spouses, and even as how we are to think about the ultimate reason for marriage. And what is more, your revelation teaches us that the greatest relationship that we have Is to you, O God, to Christ our Savior. I pray, O God, that you will strengthen the marriages that are a part of this congregation, that you will help both the wives and the husbands to be faithful in their responsibilities. And I pray for those who are single. I pray that you will encourage them and help them and may you make them to be very careful if and when they consider marriage. I pray that you will protect the homes of this church. I pray for every family here that your word would richly dwell in every household. Father, we thank you for this marvelous grace That sinful people like us have been brought into union with Jesus Christ. And we thank you that we find our life in him. And that one day when he is revealed, we will also be revealed with him in glory. Father, we thank you for these things and we pray all of this in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.